This is First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. First Draft highlights the voices of writers as they discuss their work, their craft, and the literary arts. My guest is Ben Marcus, author of five books of fiction, including The Age of Wire and String, Notable American Women, The Flame Alphabet, Leaving the Sea, and most recently, Notes from the Fog. Marcus is also the editor of two fiction anthologies. He teaches at Columbia University and lives in New York. His most recent book, Notes from the Fog, contains 13 short stories that offer darkly comic and sometimes dystopian visions of our future at work, at home, and on the road. The stories feature disappearing fathers, alienated siblings, struggling spouses, and emotionally impenetrable children. They highlight our darkest urges, juxtaposed with some of our most satisfying forms of redemption. Marcus's stories often use surreal circumstances to highlight what makes us most human. He writes about corporate drones who volunteer to get their nutrition from the light off their computers, architects creating a memorial to a mass bombing in St. Louis, who contemplate channeling in fog imbued with chemicals to instill specific emotions in the visitors to the site. He also writes about an unemployed man struggling to help his wife die with dignity by perhaps leaving her in a field. We began the discussion with Marcus describing who he is in the world as opposed to the dark and dystopian visions he puts on the page. It's a good question. You know, um, I think when I was first writing, as much younger, I, I felt that there had to be a really enormous distance between those two things and that writing was something that had to be wholly invented. And, and, and I, I really didn't appreciate writing that to me looked semi-autobiographical or um, kind of memoirish. And, and that's really changed over the years because I think even now looking back on what I was writing then, it was giving a, a lot of evidence of who I was and what I cared about and how I felt. It was just being masked in certain kind of fantastical skins. I think that I am friendlier and nicer and kinder and easier to get along with than my stories might suggest. People sometimes meet me and say, oh, wow, I was like nervous to meet you or you, I thought maybe you'd be really forbidding and cold and, you know, detached. I don't think I am. <laughs> maybe I'm not the, I shouldn't, I can't be my own character witness. I think that a lot of that comes from things, a lot of what's in my stories are things that I'm capable of thinking and feeling, the kind of the outer reaches of it. And, and I think that's what I think fiction is for, at least for me, kind of reveal that. But I'm pretty sociable and have a job and I have kids and family and I like to have fun. So, uh, yeah, I think there's a little bit of a gulf. Well, I think one of the the mysteries of of being human and one of the most interesting parts about having a brain is you can choose what you see. So one of the things that I found in your writing is that you maybe see things that are below the surface, but that we all know. For, for example, what I'm talking about is um, you know, when you look at a person, you you just look at a person, most people just walking down the street. 
But you can also look at that person as a dead man walking. It's someone who will eventually die. A picture of that person is a picture of something that will eventually be a corpse. You can look at someone's brain and say, oh, they have such a good brain. But you can also look at someone and say that they are just a variety of synapses and chemicals that are firing. You're darker than I am, <laughs> a, a walking corpse. <laughs> so, so I'm just, I think... What I found in your story is that, is that you saw people more for what they are in that moment. You dug into the fact of their chemical life or you dug into the fact of, of that stuff. And I'm wondering if you can talk about that. You know, I think that we're surrounded by wide reports of what our lives are like on the surface. And, and none of that is really news. And what's harder to get at, what's less available is what people are really, really thinking and feeling and that to me, that's one of the things that writing can do so well is to reveal what it's like to be inside someone's mind. And as much as our technology has progressed, we really don't have that, any substitute for that. And that's why I value writing so much is the way it can penetrate privacy and secrets and, and reveal something we can relate to. And I think when we read something where we're really getting at somebody's deeper, almost unbearable fears, there's actually a comfort in it because we feel a kind of companionship. And I, I just don't think there are many people who aren't occasionally susceptible to, you know, a real crippling sense of mortality, you know, as you say, and, and, um, you know, fear of, uh, disconnection. And so I think that I just am naturally trying to, trying to get at that when I write, you know, to varying degrees of success. I just recently learned about, I think it was a sort of new or new-ish term called sonder. Have you heard of this word? No. It's uh, the feeling that when you see someone on the street, this kind of goes exactly to what you're saying, that the, the realization that they have an entire life of agonies and ecstasies and fears and joys and, and, and just sort of that massive kind of rush of empathy you might get for a total stranger when you realize how deep and possibly unbearable their, their inner life is. <laughs> so it's called Sonder. So, you know, yes, you know, to me, I guess I feel like I, I don't know why I would bother writing stories that didn't somehow try to get at that territory. Um, because, again, we're so saturated in news of the surface. It must be interesting in some ways if you if you experience Sonder to live in New York. You know, I live in a small town. I don't have to face that much humanity every day. But you do. Yeah, it's actually it's it's kind of unbearable. And I notice I'm, I'm just more sensitive on different days. And there are times when you just see somebody's face and they just walk past you. And, you know, th there can be something really crushing about just I guess projecting onto them some version of of a life uh, uh, with its ups and downs, and uh, there are times when I find that intriguing and interesting, and other times when I find it very kind of depressing and difficult. Um, but I think it's I think it's necessary in that you know, to me, I feel we should be looking outward and at other people and and wondering about their experiences, right? I mean we. We know what our own experience is. And to me, you know, the more I can sort of learn or wonder about someone else's experience, maybe the more the world opens up to me. 
you had a lot of imagery in your stories that related to smoke and fog. I mean, they're called Notes from the Fog, but I noticed throughout the stories you talked about sort of this filament that would maybe cover things. It was fog and a story about two people that were creating a memorial for a horrible incident that happened in St. Louis where they were uh, a a bombing. Uh, There was, you know, smoke, images of smoke and other stories. Is this something that you were aware of? No, not really. Uh, I think that that's Unfortunately, true for a lot of what I write, I, I, I do tend to have, I think, recurring, let's say, visual motifs and obsessions that just come back and come back and come back. And I, I, I wish I had a, a kind of a more calculated answer for you. But I think I think it's just one of those things that seems to keep sneaking in. And and then I notice it after the fact. And uh I, I don't want to pretend that I have like a bigger intention behind it because I, I, I'm sort of cut off from what's going on there, to be honest. Well, I think it's nice in a way not to have a bigger intention because sometimes your writing shows you what you're obsessed with without having it be a conscious thing. Another thing I noticed in your story was that you refer to lotions a lot. You had a detective that had lotion. You had a story called Lotion. You had another character that put lotion on. Um, and some of your lotions had kind of extra powers. Well, I actually created a lotion, too. Um, there's a there's an art uh, press or sort of an art outfit that hires uh, well they it's it's a magazine and they it's called the thing quarterly and they invite writers and artists to kind of have an object created that they write something about so i actually had a a magical lotion created yeah i don't know it's a you know it's a medicine but it it's also it also cloaks us it just has i i, I think i've i've been doing that far before this book as well I think it's it seems like it's sort of innocuous, but I find it I find it creepy. I find it resonant. I, I kind of it's just a, a sort of fascination. And again, maybe like fog or smoke, it's it seems like this elemental thing that just shows up in my stories as a kind of a creepy artifact that has uh, odd properties. And uh, I'm not again sure why it keeps happening or why I haven't exhausted my interest in it. But I I think there'll probably be more lotion in the future, I have to say. Do you have a dry skin? No, I don't. Like, it's not like I, I don't have a personal obsession with lotion, like in my life. Uh, I don't, you know, like it's it doesn't seem that interesting to me. Um, I mean, I have, there's lotion in the house because I, I don't know, I have kids and a wife and we have products, but it, I think it's more in the world of my imagination that it, it seems like this uh, active uh, object just that, that seems sort of just mysterious to me and full of potential. But who knows? It also could just be a sort of silly and frivolous. There are a lot of references in your stories to pharmaceuticals in various aspects. There's a girl who's trying these antidepressants. There's someone who's trying some powder drug and her corporation. There's even 
food in some ways, people that are making a memorial. We're talking about getting pharmaceuticals to put some kind of, of chemical in the fog so that people feel a certain way. What is it about pharmaceuticals that interest you? Well, I guess the, the aspiration to feel other than we do interests me. The, the feeling that, however, you know, our baseline feeling is somehow inadequate and why, why, are, why do we drink and why do we smoke and not, you know, why are we doing all these things? And, you know, I think that a, simpler, a simple answer is there's some, there seems to be some comfort in it. And it's just interesting that we would need that comfort in the first place, that we would need to shift out of our, our regular mode of thought and feeling chemically. And I guess in this book in particular, you know, there's also the Grow Light Blues where, you know, characters testing a new technology. I, I guess I just think of the yearning we have when it comes to technology or when it comes, let's say, to drugs. Um, but I, I also, I'm, I'm sort of curious to try to invent in that space as well to think about the future. Like what is, what is the future of, pharmaceutical research like what what are what would they be motivated to do and you know antidepressants are are interesting and they've i th i think you know made life livable for millions of people but they're controversial and sort of i think open to scrutiny as well and i just wonder what's what are the next iterations of those kinds of drugs as we gain more control over um, you know manipulating the brain Right. I mean, if you could very purposely kind of dial in a mood for the day, why wouldn't you? Right. Like we have maybe puritanical resistance to these things, but it's it's hard not to feel that we're headed towards something more precise when it comes to drugs or mental augmentation. And then to kind of wonder what's behind that. Um, so I guess it shows up in my stories because I, it's a it's a curiosity and uh and to me, it's just connected to a real yearning uh, to feel something else that will match our our sense of the, uh, you know, the massiveness and the mystery of the universe. Well, it's interesting because your characters who were often working for big companies that were either tracking emotions, trying to find a way to recreate feelings Maybe it was going to end up being used in a dating service. Maybe it was going to be, hey, I'm going to take this pill and it's going to be called Tuesday. And th this is how I get to feel on Tuesday. And they're sort of trolling the universe to find the chemicals for these feelings. It's interesting that in what you're saying about this search to, to maybe feel different or feel better, you set many of the searches for this in corporations. Yeah, I do. I think that's where there is this uh, strong sense of a kind of a desire to capitalize on this, uh, this need of ours to feel otherwise than we do. And I, I sort of lightly follow um, the way tech companies talk about what they're doing. This, there's a there's a strong strain of self-satisfaction of, of really elevated importance. Um, kind of a messianic behavior around what what they're calling you know, sort of disruptions. You know, I think there's massive fortunes being poured into the creation of change, but it's really not happening with sort of a larger social discussion, right? It's it's happening 
kind of behind the scenes due to the forces of money and sort of saleability. I think then that those are then interesting settings because innovation, if that's what it is, is happening, let's say, without a lot of um, kind of ethical conversations. And we're sort of, you know, creating these things that then we have to kind of recover from. I use an iPhone and one of the big innovations of the latest iPhone software update was essentially a way to manage your use of, of the iPhone and do it and use it less and manage your children's use of it, this screen time feature. And it's just sort of interesting that this thing has created this problem of people being addicted to it. And then now it's selling us on uh, its own solution to this addiction, right? So you, it's, it's, uh, it's paradoxical and, and interesting. And, and uh, I, I think those settings have just really appealed to me. I think you can you can sh- you can show a whole range of of human behaviors of you know of, of greed and ambition uh, and some other things. So you mentioned Grow Light Blues, and in that story, Carl Hirsch was working for this company, and they basically wanted to see if he they could get he could get all his nutrients and survive. And sort of a light from the computer. It was almost as if he was eating light. Yes, and he was. He he basically said for, to this company, okay, I'll try this. It doesn't matter if it burned his face or left him, you know, depleted with no nutrition. Uh, what was the genesis of this story? And what did you maybe discover while you were writing it? It's hard to say exactly how that story became what it was. I think I, I had there's an opening bit where this character Carl sends uh, an explicit image of himself to the email server at work, and you don't really know why. And you know, it's I was sort of just attracted to this really self-destructive act because. It's, I don't think that common that we might send an image like that to a whole group of people um, who, you know, who were not even interested in sexually. And so I think the story, in some sense, needed to backpedal to figure out what had sort of driven him to that that moment. And uh, I, I think I threw him into this work setting where there were these there was a kind of um, hyperbolic kind of tech guru character who's dreaming really big and wants to do something really disruptive and he wants to disrupt food itself and he's thinking about how plants survive on light alone so why not people there's something happening in the transmission of light to flesh it just sort of arose and this character Carl becomes a guinea pig and you see that it's really not going that well but everyone sort of is invested in the success of it and wanting it to succeed. So they're overlooking the side effects a little bit. And it's clear that what they're doing isn't super legit and super ethical. And yet the, the craving to kind of succeed is so high that I think they allow themselves not to pay too much attention to Carl's suffering and, and, you know, it doesn't kill him and he kind of gets out of it eventually. Um, so it just, I think that, and that was one of the first stories I wrote for this collection notes from the fog and ended up being a little bit of a, I think a kind of a benchmark of this, the sort of it's some of its concerns show up in uh, many of the other stories as well. 
at the end, Carl finds love. It's a very quiet love, and they have a child, and it it's pre- it presents hope for this world. And it's to me, it was like this amazing moment of grace. I don't know if you would term it as a moment of grace, but I'm wondering if you would or if you think about moments of grace in your stories. Well, I'm grateful you saw it that way. I it, it would sound a little boastful for me to call it that. But, you know, to me, it had been such a grim kind of unrelenting story documenting this character's misery that I, I think I'm, I'm really interested in stories and trying to turn the tables emotionally, but to try to do it organically. And that story was really, I think, crying out to be flipped in, in a way because Carl has become so deeply misanthropic and kind of like, you know, paralyzed with uh, this pessimism that it just was interesting to see well what you know what is redemptive for a character like this that would also sort of be believable so it's not like he's swept off his feet in some new romantic situation he finds another person who seems possibly equally damaged and they don't really discuss it and they have essentially a kind of quiet friendship and they have a child together and he sort of is maneuvering back towards life and wanting to live and wanting to care and that was just a really important turn to me. There would just not have been a story without that. And I am honestly like very driven to try to create those, I guess you'd call them, you know, redemptive moments out of something that can be really wholly bleak and dark, but I find it very hard to do. It's, it's sort of, you know, you can't just kind of produce a rainbow in a story and make everything okay. So, um, you know, I think it's sort of something that happens in the story notes from the fog and it's it happens in different stories where I'm 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 sort of straining for some what feels like a genuine uplift that that flips things, even if you're not when you step back, you don't really think, oh, OK, well, life is fine now. And that was a genuinely happy ending. But it it might be that to a small degree. That story blueprints for St. Louis was so fascinating to me. I was curious about what inspired it because you have this couple that their relationship is kind of falling apart, but they are trying to get this commission to make a memorial where this bombing happened. And they're really thinking about, you know, do we do we create a film of smoke? Do we use stone? Do we bring in this fog that has some kind of chemical to make people feel something as if they won't already feel something? And how do you make a monument to an unspeakable catastrophe? Can you talk about this story? Sure. I had thought about that question a lot. What is the strategy behind a monument and who is it for and what should it do? Uh, living in New York, I followed the um, you know, post 9-11 conversations around the memorial here and was just really absorbed by the different stakeholders in that project, the, the, the families of the loved ones who were lost, um, the architects themselves who were often kind of cast in a kind of a colder light, the city and, and you know, and, the, and then people living in the city who kind of needed to live in and around this, this, this place. And, and I spent some time in Berlin, too, which is a city filled with memorials. It's uh, so much of the urban space is devoted to Holocaust memorials, you know, uh, as, which is 
partly retributive on their part. I mean, there's sort of this almost, you know, not it's not overcompensating, but there's such a desire to try to kind of address what happened in that place. And so I think it was just a question that interested me a lot. And I I had a little, a short scene. I mean, it wasn't even really a scene. It was a little page of a of a married couple kind of in bed watching on TV the sort of the, the news of some terrorist calamity and realizing that they might be asked to design the memorial. And it was just, I think that was the seed of it. And um, the story just sort of took shape around that. And I think I was trying to figure out where the tensions of it might be. Um, so they, one of the, one of the people in the couple is kind of more commercially minded. The other is perhaps more of an insular artist and she really is not as kind of concerned or in a way, maybe she's even more concerned with doing justice to something that's unspeakable and terrible. And the story posits a, a sort of a near future world where these terrorist attacks are more common and therefore the production of memorials is more common. And there's almost a kind of new language that's arising around these memorials or a set of styles. And so I guess that was it that those, those factors were just really compelling to me. And, uh, you know, it was also, I think the first story where I really kind of allowed myself to get inside the artistic process of a character. And I had for a long time, kind of vowed I would never write a story about an artist and that artist's process. I found that self-indulgent and not that interesting. And so I sort of did, in a way, I think of that character um, as the first artist I've really written about. And, and so she, you know, and she's really struggling to kind of figure out how to make something that will match the intensity of what happened. You have a lot of couples in there who are just strangely mean to each other. You know, they, they know where to dig. Your first couple who are raising a, two, two sons, one who doesn't really want to be loved and cuddled by them anymore. They promise to be intensely honest. So it's like you find people's weakest points and then you push them against each other in those weakest points. And I'm wondering what your attraction to that is. I mean, maybe that's where all the juicy sentences are. I don't know. Isn't that just sort of a facet of relationships though, too? I mean, <laughs> maybe, maybe my experience is, is limited. I, I just, I think that, you know, relationships give us comfort and, and joy and a feeling of belonging, but then you know, to be deeply known by someone is also to become very vulnerable. And I think relationships have, you know, a power is developed on each side to really hurt the other person. And so, uh, and then, you know, you bring in kind of child rearing as a, as a problem that they're, that the, uh, that the couple faces and I think I'm just interested in the way, you know, a couple is this kind of romantic unit. And when, when you have children and you raise children, it's, there's really nothing remotely romantic about that. It's that suddenly, you know, you're sharing this job and it's a challenging job, but it's really rewarding. And, and that has its kind of consequences though, in the way that relationship that married or coupled relationship develops. And so, you know, I'm not really, it's not like a worldview of relationships, but yeah, maybe you're right. It's where the juicy sentences are. It's, I, uh, I like 
I think I want to write stories that have conflict and turbulence and tension because to me that's sort of what plot is. And <clears throat> if everyone's getting along and everyone's happy and everyone's okay, there's no story that I can see. This is kind of a big question. It might be too, too much, but I'm just wondering about your thoughts on the soul and the spirit since so much of your writing does talk about the sort of corporeal aspects of being alive. The soul and the spirit. I don't know if I, are you sort of talking about like something that remains after we die? Not even that necessarily, but it's like, I felt like a lot of your stories, you know, you're talking about chemicals for depression and becoming bones or missing bodies or things that are much more physical. And in those moments of grace, I think, is where you see the entrance of, of the soul in our connection with other people. I'm not saying at all that your stories are devoid of it. I'm just wondering about any of your thoughts about that, that other part of us that makes us who we are, that isn't our synapses, it's not our bones, it's not what we do for work. I guess I just don't know what I see beyond the physical, beyond the brain. I mean, I, you know, I, I feel like I would be entering into wishful thinking if I was imposing a lot on that, on that space. Um, you know, I think that there's so much that we don't reveal about ourselves and, and I uh, really try to zero in on it. Now, what, what you call it, I guess, is another question. And maybe, maybe we're talking about the same thing there. Um, maybe that the soul is that thing that's kind of most commonly hidden from others because I think of I think of it in that way um, I guess both of those terms strike me as slightly religious or, or sort of speaking to something kind of a, a, a body mind or kind of yeah body disconnect and I don't know right I don't I mean I I, I'm not discounting it. It's just um, not a space I, I, I can say much about. At the same time, to me, that doesn't mean there's any reason to reduce the complexity and mystery of what it is to be human. So maybe we're sort of talking about the same thing with different words. Can you read a passage from an author that speaks to you or influenced you as a writer? Yeah, I picked something out by... Um, one of my favorite writers of all time, Joy Williams. Um, and it's a story of hers called Winter Chemistry. It's just a couple, uh, sort of half a page from the beginning of the story. It was the middle of January and there was nothing to look forward to. The radio station went off at dusk and dusk came early in the afternoon and then came the dark and nothing to watch but a bleached out moon lying over fields slick as a frosted cake and nothing to hear at all. There was nothing left of Christmas but the cold that slouched and pressed against the people. Their blood was full of it, and their eyes and the food that they ate. The people walked the streets wearing woolen masks as though they were gangsters or deformed. Old ladies died of breaks and foolish wounds in houses where no one came, and fish froze in the quiet of their rivers. <laughs> That's the opening of the story. Um... I, I, you know, and so I love how, how, how bleak it is. And yet it, there seems to be almost something kind of supernaturally, uh, strange. And yet it's all kind of a 
very real description. And the story turns out to be about two friends and it becomes a kind of, I wouldn't say a conventional story, but it does have, it does have a dramatic thrust. It's just that the opening, the setting of backdrop and just this refrain of there's nothing to see, nothing to look forward to, nothing to hear. It's so, uh, it's so grim that she pivots off of that and the story finds different emotional registers, but she's just somebody who story after story after story, just even in the first line of the stories, she does something to me that's so commanding that I just want to listen and keep reading. Can you read something you wrote? Maybe it was tricky or changed a lot from the first draft or something you're happy with? Sure. Uh, so I can read a couple lines from a story, uh, the title story from my book, Notes from the Fog. You can't give up what you never started, said someone from my past, a mother, a father, a friend, such a long time ago. I remember only the vague outline of their body and the horrible glow from their mouth when they spoke. I did little jobs, big jobs, no jobs. Coins came in and I smashed them into bread, into meat. I made a deal with County Electric and they put me on a schedule of darkness, which killed the lights for days in exchange for no charges. And they leaked me power when they could spare it. A trickle on a Saturday, that sort of thing. The house would suddenly hum, shuddering back on, and I'd see something wild and terrible in the mirror. Enough light to blind a small animal, I'd think. I'm sure I wasn't the first person to think about bottling it, but what I had was more than enough. I would have been fine with less. I'll stop there. Um, I don't know exactly where that fits in the, in the category. You know, I think I was, um, this, this character is kind of given up his children because he has no money and he's trying to trying to get back to work. And I think it's just the way I was trying to characterize his life without being too specific. It was just important to try to get a certain tone. So I worked on that quite a lot. And like the line coins came in and I smashed them into bread and to meat. And I had a copy editor early on say, well, he's not technically smashing these coins. I don't know what to picture here. And I sort of held my ground and said, well, yeah, it's a metaphor. And it's, I think people can kind of perform that math on their own and see, yes, we turn money into food. And I don't know. So there's just something about that when I knew you wanted me to read a little something, something about that that stuck out for me. Well, that's interesting because you had a line somewhere that I, I, I turned the corner down, although I can't find it now, where you're, when you were talking and you said somewhere in here that when you put in a metaphor, it negates both things. Oh, yeah. There's a character who says we can never say th one thing is like another because it ruins both things. I don't know. That just seemed funny to me. Just a, a pronouncement against, obviously, we, are, we can't live without comparison. It's, I think, crucial to the language and crucial to our lives. And it just, it felt like a, a really over-the-top pronouncement that was kind of exciting to me when I thought of it. Not necessarily when I endorsed, though. But it's so interesting sometimes because when, you know, you, you often write sentences that are true and not true at the same time, and that's what life is. Yeah. Well, and uh, wait, I wanted to quickly go. So, you know, it, there's a simile in what I read from Joy Williams, um, a bleached out moon lying over fields, slick as a frosted cake. So like that to me is a simile there that really earns its place because 
it's just, it's sort of kind of horrific. It's a little grotesque, but it also is a kind of joyful thing. It's a frosted cake and yet it's being attached to something so bleak. So I think there's humor there, the way she's, she's pitching us into one place and then pulling us way back out with the imagery of a frosted cake. Right. I think to me, like a lesser writer there would have used a simile to reinforce the darkness and we would have felt something melodramatic, something where we were being pushed too hard to see the meaning. And there's such confidence when a writer, in fact, goes the other way. And it releases you as a reader, I think, to have a much more complex reaction. You don't feel like you're being controlled. Where do you write? I write at a desk, pretty much. I, I don't really have a specific place in New York. I spend my summers in Maine and I have a little backyard writing studio, which I love. And in New York, I don't really have an office. I have a desk in um, my bedroom and there's a dining room table where I sometimes put my computer. But I also go to the library. I, I teach at Columbia. And so I'll try to go find a little quiet nook there. I try to be pretty mobile. I try not to fetishize my space because I don't have much. And what do you do or where do you go to get away from writing? I, I love to cook. I like to, I, I make sourdough bread. I like to bake. Um, in the summers, I've gotten a little more interested in sailing and in rowing. I like to bike. I like to ski. Um, I coach my son's flag football team. Um, so he and I do a lot of sports together. That's probably all I can think of. Who do you show your work to first to get feedback? I show my work to uh, a friend named Andrew Eisenman, who long ago was a student and is a writer I respect and is a very sharp editor. And he um, is just, he's challenging and gives me close readings. And I also show my work to my wife, Heidi Julevitz. She's a writer and she's a super sharp reader and sees what I'm trying to do and is, is also a very experienced editor. Um, so she is, is incredibly thorough and intelligent and um, helpful. How have you dealt with rejection? I just get sad and then I, then I recover. I, I don't have some kind of strategy. I mean, it's, it's, uh, it's just a fact of being a writer and, and rejection isn't just someone saying they might, they won't publish you. I mean, rejection might also just be if you publish something and people don't read it the way you want, or if they don't read it at all, or if it doesn't get reviewed or if it gets reviewed badly, right? There's all kinds of things that happen that aren't exactly what you would like. And I, I guess to me, it always just throws me back on my own reasons for writing that I, I'm really not doing this to, try to please other people. I hope people get pleasure. I really do. But I have to kind of not get too bound up in how I'm seen or how I'm, how I'm judged because it doesn't really help, even if it's positive, right? Even if you're, let's say, getting a lot of praise, I find that doesn't help me write well. And getting criticism doesn't help me write well either. So in some sense, I think I just try to... Um, sort of put it out into its own distant category and um, and just try to try to get back to work and try to try to work as hard as I can you know I, I have my own critical reactions to what I write that are often harsher than anything I'm reading and 
those are the standards I'm trying to address, really, my own. And what is your favorite word? This is the hardest question ever. I'm going to have to say glow, but I, I also want to just say I, I, I don't have one. I, uh, I like to think that words take on energy in their, in their context, that any word is potentially my favorite word if I can figure out the right sentence for it. You've been listening to First Draft, a dialogue on writing produced at Aspen Public Radio. My guest was Ben Marcus, author of the short story collection, Notes from the Fog. You can follow First Draft on Facebook. Just look for First Draft, a dialogue on writing and click like, and on Twitter at First Draft APR. You can email me at firstdraftwriters at gmail.com. The theme music for First Draft was produced and performed by Murph Mahaffey. I'm Mitzi Rapkin. Thanks for listening.